are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, the nation of Israel is, in one sense, almost clumsily transitioning to the leadership of King Saul. Eli had been the leader of the nation, but Samuel, of course, in 1 Samuel, takes the responsibility, becomes the prophetic figure, the judge over the nation. But eventually the people wanted to be uh, like all the nations around them and to have a king that they could see with their own eyes. Instead of being a theocracy, they wanted to have an actual physical king that they could see and follow. And so Saul was anointed by Samuel privately and then publicly lots were cast and Saul's tribe and family uh, and name was called and he was celebrated as the king of Israel. They actually shouted, long live the king. The question then, of course, was what do we do next? Do we put together a governmental system? Do we organize? What is it that we are going to do? Well, there was a man here in 1 Samuel 11 verse 1 named Nahash who answered that question for them. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So you have this enemy figure, an Ammonite man, his name is Nahash, which means snake. He is a perfect picture in many ways of the devil himself, the ultimate snake, serpent of old, uh, who wants to tear down God's people. And he comes up and he besieges Jabesh Gilead. They respond to Nahash by saying, listen, let's make a treaty and we'll serve you. Apparently, he was coming from a position of strength and they from a place of weakness. And so they wanted to serve him in order to in really a trade for their lives. But Nahash, verse two, the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So he's open to the idea of a treaty, but he wants to remove their right eyes. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now it strikes us as odd that when they make this request of Nabash, that he would concede. They say, hey, give us seven days time to see if we can put an army together. And if not, then yeah, we'll submit to your plan. Probably, however, Jabesh was counting on a couple of different things. For one, he was probably counting on the weakness of God's people. He seems to be very confident that they would not be able to put an army together. And if they weren't able to put an army together, then they had said that they would commit to this treaty. And that would save him 
the cost of having to go out into war and be in battle and certainly experience some loss and some expense. And so he's calculating here and he thinks to himself, okay, well, I don't think they're going to put an army together. So it's worth the risk. And so it's sort of a calculated decision. He's counting on the weakness of God's people. But I think additionally, there's the potential at least that Nabash was counting on the unforgiveness of God's people. Jabesh Gilead might sound familiar to you. And the reason that it would be familiar is because back in Judges chapter 19 through 21, there was a conflict that the nation of Israel had with the people of Jabesh Gilead. What had occurred there in Judges 19 to 21 is that the nation of Israel had witnessed the tribe of Benjamin commit grave evil. Uh, they had allowed a horrible crime to be committed. A man's concubine had died in one of their towns. He cut up her body. She had been basically just abused to the point of death at the hands of some Benjamites. And so he cut up her body and sent it out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they came and they fought against the Benjamites. But then the Benjamites were so depleted as a tribe that the people began to weep because they realized that these Benjamites needed to get married and repopulate as a tribe but there were no wives to give them. And the people of Israel had covenanted that they would not give wives to this tribe. And so they looked and figured out that the citizens of Jabesh Gilead had failed to come and fight with them against the Benjamites. And so actually in a rather hilarious story, they run to Jabesh Gilead and they steal women from the town at this evening party that everyone's having and then say, well, hey, sorry, you know, we needed some wives kind of thing. And so perhaps Nahash is counting on the rest of the nation being very unforgiving towards Jabesh Gilead saying, hey, listen, you're asking us to gather together in battle for you. You did not come and gather with us in battle against the Benjamites. So perhaps he's counting on the weakness of God's people, but also unforgiveness uh, as well. Now behold, verse 5, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. Now, I should mention that there's at least a chance that Saul's ancestry was traced to Jabesh Gilead. He was a Benjamite, so there's the possibility that in previous generations of his family, one of the women of Jabesh Gilead had been stolen by a Benjamite man, and that had created this family then, and that Saul's ancestry was in one sense tied to that town. We can't know for sure, obviously. It's not in the text, but it is a possibility. But when he hears this news, oh, he doesn't respond flippantly. There's no casual concern. No, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, verse 6. 
You know, he was filled again and afresh with the Spirit of God. And as I'd mentioned to you in our study of chapter 10, I explained that the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, New Testament sense resides within us, but that I still see and believe that in the book of Acts, you find that the church was experiencing still moments where the Spirit of God would rush upon them for works of ministry. And Saul here is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit rushes upon him when he hears these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. There was just this fire brewing inside of this man, a righteous indignation, a good anger. He was angry without sin. Jesus was angry. That's why he stepped out of heaven to defeat sin and to redeem us unto himself. And so Saul is angry in the right sense as he hears these words. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. The message was clear. You know, Jabesh Gilead, in previous years, may not have responded to the cut-up body of the concubine that had been sent out to the nation. That might not have caused them to rise up for battle, but it's clear their past failures would be forgiven in the sight of Saul. He cuts up his oxen, sends it out to the rest of Israel, and says, listen, we've got to get together and battle for this town. He would not allow a root of bitterness to invade his heart. He was willing to go out into the fight and forget some of the things that this town had done in their past. And so he musters them together. He claims to them, listen, come out after Saul and Samuel, sort of borrowing some of the authority of Samuel a little bit during this transitional time in the nation. And you have 300,000 soldiers from Israel and 30,000 soldiers from Judah. Interesting that the author makes a distinction between the two rather than just speaking of them as all of Israel, as they would have been known at that particular time. And so they get this huge army together and they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. You know, take heart, we're coming. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. This is the word that they spoke to Nahash. And kind of saying, listen, you know, we'll surrender tomorrow they're they're confident of victory they're concealing the plan and it's interesting because when they say do to us whatever seems good to you it's literally whatever seems good in your eyes a little bit of an ironic pun there because he had said i'm going to gouge out your right eye he says well you know hey do to us whatever seems good in 
your eyes. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, sort of a, a, a strategic style of battle in that era. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. You know, there's just this real national excitement at this point after this victory. Hey, weren't there people who doubted whether Saul should be the guy? Let's kill them. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It's interesting here that they were excited after they anointed Saul, but they're more receptive to his leadership after he goes out and leads them in battle. Just a little bit of that sacrifice coming from his life, some victory coming from his life. You can have it all, but if you don't have love, then you're as sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. You know, you've got to have a, a heart that's willing to lay your life on the line for others. And when people see that, there's just this respect, this admiration, this love, this willingness to follow. It's interesting that Saul would say, listen, no, we're not going to kill anyone today. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He gave God at this moment in his life all the glory. Then Samuel said to the people, verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the good news here for Saul is that Samuel, as a result of this victory, even Samuel now is really convinced that God had his hand upon Saul's life. And so Samuel organizes this event at Gilgal, a very important geographical place for Saul and his life. And they get together. And it's interesting and uh, kind of difficult to figure out exactly what is occurring at this particular moment. Perhaps all they're doing is just sort of confirming uh, that Saul is the king. They're not really making him the king, but they're confirming it. Maybe, uh, you know, just giving thanksgiving for the great victory that God had given to them. But this could be really an additional, maybe even at the one year anniversary of the initial anointing of Saul as king, a moment for them to covenantally renew their allegiance to Saul and reaffirm Saul's kingship. Either way, it's a significant event in Saul's life because of the place. Uh, you know, he would go there after this victory and be reaffirmed as king. In chapter 13, he'll become impatient and not wait for Samuel to arrive and offer a sacrifice and be rebuked strongly by his spiritual mentor. And then this will also be the place that after his defeat of the Amalekites, but his disobedience in uh, not eliminating them completely. It's there in chapter 15 that he'll be rejected as 
king. And so a very significant place in Saul's life. And if he'd only responded well to this first moment in Gilgal, he might not have had the second two events at Gilgal occur in his life. But perhaps this moment was the moment that began to lead his heart into the realm of sinful pride. Now in chapter 12, we have the record of what occurred on that, in that place at Gilgal. And Samuel said to Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. This is sort of the moment now where Samuel's life work has been completed. He's ready to abdicate his role and his leadership over to Samuel, but he's going to give them one last address to reaffirm the kingship and explain what the king will do and what God will do. He makes it very clear in his introduction that he has obeyed their voice. In other words, this wasn't my idea. I didn't choose for you to have a king. But what the enemy is meant for evil, God will use for good. You know, the, the king, Saul, would lead to the second king, David, who would lead to an establishing of a nation and ultimately to the line of Christ. And so he says, and now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. What a powerful and strong statement. This man, he'd been faithful to the Lord for his entire life, which is becoming more and more of a rare occurrence in the day and age when, in which we live. Many believers think that they've got to have a time of backsliding or almost some, I think, feel that they are entitled to a season of backsliding. But Samuel was a man who from his youth, he gave his life to the Lord. He walked with the Lord. None of us has a destiny for sin. We are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. He says, here I am, verse 3, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Samuel throws his life out before others and says, Listen, I have not served you and ministered to you from a brutal position or the position of a tyrant. I have served you well. I haven't taken from you. I haven't gotten wealthy off of you. Testify to me. I'll restore it to you. Samuel's leadership, of course, is, is going to be in direct contrast between the leadership of the kings, as he'd previously explained. They said, verse 4, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel really wanted to be clear on this particular point. And Samuel said to the people, verse 6, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds 
of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So Samuel here is going to begin to speak to the nation concerning the faithfulness of God in their past. Now, God had always had a system of direct deliverance, and he'd always sent messengers and leaders. That's why he starts here with Moses and Aaron and the fact that God had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. The inference is clear. He's saying, listen, you've asked for a king to lead you, to deliver you, to grant you victory, to speak to you. But don't you know, the Lord has always appointed leaders for you. And, and the Lord has always delivered you from your captivities. He hasn't needed a king. He is your king. And so he says, stand still. I'm going to declare to you some of these righteous deeds of the Lord. He starts in verse 8 with Jacob. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So again, testimony number one. The Israelites cried out to the Lord in Egypt in their bondage. God heard them, sent them Moses and his brother Aaron, and they were delivered, and they came to live in the promised land. But, verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel, and Barak, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. He reminds them really mostly of the period of the judges and immediately following and even a little bit preceding just telling them listen every time that you had a nation rise up against you and you found yourself in slavery to them you would cry out to the Lord and he would send you a deliverer he would send you a judge. And so how, you know, they forgot the Lord, but then they remembered and the Lord was faithful. Don't you see that the Lord is enough? He sent you Gideon. He sent you Barak. He sent you Jephthah. He sent you Samuel. He sent you all of these men. The Lord would always be faithful to you. And he says, and when you saw verse 12, that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king and now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked behold the Lord has set a king over you you know in their previous history Samuel is saying in their previous history they had cried out to the Lord but no longer would they cry out to the Lord they'd grown impatient with that pattern they didn't want to seek his deliverance they just wanted to hire out the deliverance to a king and it's so shameful when people want to neglect their personal relationship with the Lord. He's so faithful to us. He wants to personally save us, personally deliver us. But instead, they wanted a figurehead over them. But now God is going to express his grace. At this point, the Lord could, in anger, reject them as a people, leave them, be on their own. 
But Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. He just announces to them, listen, really God is still the king here. And if you will obey the Lord, if you will follow the Lord, then he will be faithful to you. This was just a moment of God's grace, giving them directions from this time forward. Listen, walk with the Lord from this time forward, Samuel is saying to the nation. This is the way things are now. You can't go back on it. You have your king. You cannot remove him. This is now God's permissive will for your life. But follow the Lord still. He'll be faithful to you. Now, therefore, verse 16, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And so Samuel here is warning the people saying, listen, this is a, this is a bad thing that you've done. This is, this is sinful. You have not trusted in the Lord. You have not done the right thing in asking for yourselves a king. And here's the sign. I know it's not the season for thunder and rain. This is the early summer, the time of the wheat harvest. But I'm going to pray God will send this thunder and rain. And as he did, it says there in verse 18 that all the people greatly feared. There was this distress of heart as they saw this miracle take place. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They were convicted within their hearts. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Again, the grace of God. He says, listen, the Lord is not going to forsake you. Now, you can't change what you have done. I'm glad that you are brokenhearted over it, humbled by it. But walk with the Lord because he will not forsake his people. This is incredible grace that is flowing from God toward the people. I love Samuel's exhortation in verse 21 when he says, don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. They were chasers of empty things. You know, the reality is that the cross is a full thing. Pursue the cross of Christ. They were chasing that which could not deliver, but the cross with all of its paradoxes attached to it, come and die and find life. The reality is that the cross is full. It is absolutely the opposite of empty. Moreover, verse 23, as for me, 
far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. So Samuel says, I'll still teach you, and I will still pray for you. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel announces to them, listen, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. I'll continue to intercede for you. It is good for those strong in the faith to intercede for those who are weak. Notice how he refers to his life of prayer for the nation, though. As a leader, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He saw prayerlessness as sin. I mean, really, in one sense, you could say that Samuel's whole life was a result of prayer. His mother had prayed for her own barren womb and had Samuel. And so Samuel had become a man of intense prayer. Let us pray and cry out to God. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.